0: So this podcast is intended for UK and Ireland healthcare professionals only. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Series 2 and Episode 1 of the Interstitial Lung Disease Academy Spotlight Podcasts. It's brought to you by Boehringer Ingelheim and features prominent members of the UK and Ireland ILD community. The podcasts hope to shine a spotlight on the great work that is being done around the country and break down some of the challenges facing us in delivering excellent care to patients and working with patients. My name is Dr Anne-Marie Russell, a clinical academic at the University of Exeter Respiratory Institute and Royal Devon and Exeter NHS Foundation Trust. I have a special interest in patient-reported measures and outcomes in interstitial lung disease and patient-centred approaches. Joining me on today's episode is Mr. John Conway, a gentleman who has a great deal of knowledge and understanding related to his lived experience of IPF. John is also a strong advocate for patients and set up a very dynamic and educational patient support group at St. George's NHS Trust for people living with interstitial lung diseases. John's patients' perspectives have also featured in the Spotlight series in The Lancet. Good morning. Welcome, John.
1: Uh, Thanks, Anne-Marie. Great to be here.
0: So I wonder if I could start by asking a little bit about you as a person and the context of your life before you made that transition to becoming a patient diagnosed with uh, IPF.
1: Uh, Indeed, and in fact, that's a a really important question because it's uh, so easy and so often that uh, a person becomes their condition and their their identity is lost. And it's something that I come across again and again uh, within even my patient group um, for, from the support group's perspective. Uh, and they just lose all sense of nearly humanity. Um, I mean, for me, uh, you know, I've worked in academia, um, i worked predominantly within third level education uh, as a technologist. And uh, I lived a Fairly healthy life. Um, you know, didn't smoke, you know, social drinker. Uh, but I played lots of racket sports, badminton, table tennis, uh, tennis, uh, cycled and skied and, and you know, did fairly kind of normal things. But, you know, I was very much health conscious. So being diagnosed with a, what was considered a rare and a, a fairly kind of life, well, shortening condition at the very least. Uh, was quite a surprise um i remember back in um when i was heading towards 50 i thought it might be worth going to my gp and just having a regular checkup once you're sort of heading towards the half century it kind of does concentrate the mind a little bit thinking well you might have been fairly lucky up to now uh let, let's make sure everything is is okay so um went to a gp um I did mention at the time that i had this cough that i couldn't really get rid of but i wasn't really particularly concerned about it but my gp was um just thought well just to be on the on the safe side sent me for uh an x-ray and that actually came back and it, it was clear the following year i went back and went had my regular mot as i call it and i just got to see the same doctor which I, I thought was quite unusual these days to be able to do that and she decided again just to send me to it for again uh, an exploratory x-ray just to make sure everything was okay now those results came back and there was something in the kind of the, the base uh, basal regions of my lungs which um, kind of concerned her a bit and she decided at that stage to refer me to a specialist so that was towards the end of uh, 2014 and heading into 2015 um, from 2015 onwards I basically went through a series of tests to try and rule out and to try and find out what it actually could be. And with um, any, uh, particularly with ILDs, as you're no doubt aware, there's a lot of subconditions it can be. And they, in the early stages, which this was, um, they, they sort of mask each other. So it's hard to really identify a, a true underlying cause. And sometimes you need time. But if some of the more shall we say, severe conditions, then um, time isn't something you have an awful lot of. And with IPF in particular, which is is one of the more um, stringent, if you like, conditions, that still has a prognosis, fairly poor prognosis of anything from three to five years from diagnosis. So you can sort of see that you may feel in a fairly good condition, particularly early in it, in, in the diagnosis, but it can rapidly it can rapidly decline, and that means you've got less you know, function that you can actually do things with. So it's really important to get early diagnosis of a condition, particularly one that has limited treatment options as well, which this does. It only has two antivibrotic uh, treatments that are currently on offer.
0: I, I think you—it's uh, really interesting, John, that it sounds like you had a, a fantastic GP, and I—I I think that's worth celebrating because we can often be uh, critical of our, our general practitioner colleagues. Um, and um, I'm interesting interested that you were having a, a kind of regular health check and an MOT. I, I think that probably rarely happens these days. Certainly under the age of seventy. So. It's fantastic that your um, GP picked up on the cough and and decided to investigate. And I I, I just wondered if you hadn't had that that GP input, do you think you would have probably just continued with those mild symptoms and not done anything about it, and possibly lost a a couple of years?
1: I have I have no doubt that that would have been the case. And in fact, it was it was really my wife that sort of kept nagging me, said you know. You you definitely need to get that cough checked out, and and I think that's often the case that uh, it's your spouse or those around you that identify that there is actually something that needs checking. And maybe I was being a, oh oh well, that's fine, it you know I'll I'll work through it in some way. But it was very fortunate, and you're quite right. I have I have an awful lot of gratitude to my GP that she was so on it she had actually taken a really good family history as well so she could sort of see because i did have like my father died from a a condition you know back you know back in the 90s and it again so little was known back then um it wasn't that surprising that we didn't sort of kind of follow that through a bit more of course in hindsight you know we should have done a lot more but as i say at the time the um the, the science wasn't that well um, evolved. Um, and But w- once that information was given, and that's why it's really important to really go back into family history, because you've no idea what in the past may indicate something that has come back uh, to, to the present. And my GP, as I say, I'll be forever grateful that uh, she had picked that up and had had followed it through in a thorough fashion.
0: So, so after that, John, and, and just thinking back to that initial referral through to a, a, a specialist interstitial lung disease team, um, we I, I think there's still a lot that we don't understand about familial IPF. Um, I wondered if you could perhaps share some of your experiences with us about that familial diagnosis.
1: Well yes i mean as it's turned out the the familial is is probably the more accurate diagnosis for me although obviously the working diagnosis was was ipf Um, and even because i was in the early stages as well it wasn't quite clear cut because there's a number of um uh, kind of indicators that you need to have all of them in place and that's why you need to have a multidisciplinary team make that final diagnosis so anything beyond that that does not have that multidisciplinary uh, input really can't be considered a, a firm diagnosis uh, because there's so many aspects to it. Um, and in the early stages in particular, that's why it's really it's a really difficult condition to come down hard on in the early stages, which is such a dichotomy because you don't have much time, uh, if it is IPF, to be able to maintain quality of life. Uh, because there's certain, probably, changes you need to make to your life. You know, you need to probably do more exercise. You need to make sure that you're not over uh, stressed, because stress can be a driver to it. That's something I definitely have found out. So I reduced my stress, you know, fairly early on. I mean, I worked at a fairly stressful job at a third-level university. I enjoyed it, but with anything, there's always those stress uh, situations. And they did their best to try and modify my work so that I could still, you know, do it and be effective in it. And you know, I tried that for a while, but I, I realized I couldn't really provide the same quality uh, as I wished and and the job needed. So that's when I looked at being able to get more of a part-time role uh, elsewhere, which, uh, which is what I did, and glad I did. And that was back in 2017. So that was two years following my. Confirmed diagnosis, um, and it was early in seventeen um, that I basically went and managed to get my my current role, um, which is at um, a, a community interest company involved in healthcare. Ironically, um, so um, so that's that's been again. I've been very fortunate, and not everybody can do that uh, to to be able to reduce stress. If anything, you'll have maybe young pe- younger people than me who still have uh, you know full-time job they've got a young family to support as well so it's very difficult to see in those situations how you know the stress can be reduced but if it can it should and wherever it can be but then that's really important to try and and do that uh, if at all possible um, continuing more around the familial aspect of it because that means that there's a genetic component and uh i've obviously gone on to various studies i've you know been part of the hundred thousand genome project which i joined a number of years ago uh and there's in, in excess of it could be anything like 75 genes that have some way have some impact around fibrotic conditions and that that's a lot of genes and the way that they interact i mean i've not very little, if anything, really, except in lay terms about genomics because of the tests I've been involved in. Um, but it's a, it's a very exciting area for sure. And uh, but it's it's you can imagine it's a really difficult uh, area to become hard and fast about this gene or this expression has caused this particular symptom, and what what can you do as well uh, in regards to that. So, but it's it's a, it's a definitely a developing area. Uh, and it's a bit like personalised medicine. You can sort of see it evolving in a, in a similar way.
0: And, and so, I guess that helps to to have um, family support around you, people who really understand. And I, I, I guess, also support from healthcare professionals is important too. And so, I'm I'm wondering that you know you're living with a a, a progressive uh, condition i I guess you can't anticipate how it's going to feel until you're in that place of experiencing those symptoms and and living with 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 worsening symptoms. How um, how did you manage those 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 processes? And I, I I know that you were successful in being referred for for transplant assessment, John. Um, but I, I just wondered if you could reflect and and think about that period in 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 life and um, on what worked and um, and what people can take inspiration from.
1: Well, it, it, it's it's re- I mean it's really inter- interesting um, this whole area because I, I remember again in the early stages I remember I read this paper and it was. Um, it basically concluded that uh, an engaged and informed patient, irrespective of the underlying condition, had better outcomes. And I took great support from that and, and great encouragement that I just need to educate myself about this and find out what's good and what's not good and what I should be doing more of, and looking at diet as well as exercise uh, and reducing stress. So I looked at a whole kind of uh, conglomeration of uh, strategies to try and, you know, keep the worst parts of this condition as far into the future as I could possibly do. That's really uh, key uh, to know that there's a lot of research going on as we speak and there's lots of patients signing up to those trials. And I would encourage people to do that because it's only from patients signing to those trials that there's going to be any breakthroughs. Without patience, it just doesn't happen. Um, I also remember once reading this paper about this uh, patient who was having so much trouble just getting dressed in the morning. And I, I, was, I was, remember getting dressed one morning, and I was, you know, fine, dressed in the normal way. And I was sort of thinking of that patient, thinking, that can't be me. I, I can't imagine that that's ever going to be me because I was so fit, fit and healthy. And it was probably less than a year and a half later, and I remember getting dressed, and that article came to mind. And it was, I, w- I was struggling getting dressed. So it was just showing how progressive and how rapidly I was progressing. And this is particular, I think, a feature, uh, at least in my experience, with familial PF. I do think it's a, it's a more severe form of IPF, and it, ca- it generally can progress more rapidly. Um, the steps it can progress in, of course, is you can have these exacerbations, which is this increase in symptoms you can have. And I did have a couple of those. I remember once being on holidays in Italy. Remember those holidays abroad? Um, and uh, I I remember one night waking up and I just had this fit of coughing and I just couldn't stop this coughing. And it went on for hours. It felt like hours. It probably wasn't, but it really did feel like it. And the pain that I got from it... and I just knew from when when I got back and home and I remember going in for my next lung function test and it had dropped more than 10% and I knew that was the event that dropped it. That can happen at any time. There was no one thing that I could say, oh, that probably triggered that exacerbation. It just just come on and it's such a random thing. Um, And that's what brings me back to this point about if you can reduce stress, if you can become a bit more thoughtful in your actions. If you're someone who rushed, and I was someone who was always rushing, you know, I was rushing to the next meeting, and in the early stages, you don't feel it's progressing, you feel you're but I would perceive as a, and people would perceive as a plateau, Um, but it's not really a plateau. Um, There is always progression. Um, The medication does reduce the rate of progression. That's their purpose. They're not cures, Uh, but it is progressing, and it's only when you get to the end or towards the end stage of the condition that you really feel what that is but in the early stages you don't because you could still more or less do the normal things and that's why it's so important that when you can have that um hiatus of uh still increased function that you make the most of it that you do the exercises that you you know if you can go and and visit people i know in covid that's a really difficult thing and you have to be careful all the time and make your risk assessments um when when you do Go out into into society, but you still should do that. You shouldn't become a prisoner, either. So it's a balance, and you always have to make that judgment. It's a judgment call, um, but to know the risks at the same time is really important.
0: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It certainly has been a particularly challenging time for everyone through COVID, but especially for people with with interstitial lung disease as well. And. John, I, I know you're a very hopeful person, and as you say, you educated yourself, uh, you engaged um, with clinicians, you reduced your stress, you you looked at in uh, uh, at maximising your quality of life through a, a number of strategies, but you got to that point where you realised that the IPF was 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 progressing, um, and yeah. and I guess. Possibly had to start to think and contemplate your own um, mortality, which is uh, uh, difficult for for all of us. I just wondered how how you got through that and um, being a younger a, a younger man and eligible for transplant, how how those discussions were were facilitated.
1: Yeah, I mean it's very true. Um, I've always been quite quite positive, and I've always you know it's a bit of you know life gives you a lemon you make lemonade and i've always had that kind of philosophy on things and no matter how dark things seem you can always do something there's always something that can be done but then i got to a point and this was towards the end of uh 2020 and i was yeah uh, th- there was no light at the end of the tunnel you know i was really getting to a point of you know there's what what I was doing was I was looking back 6 months thinking what I was able to do and what I was able to do now and then it was quite easy to look forward 6 months and think okay that doesn't look a very good 6 months ahead of me and it was I was having real difficulty trying to see where the positivity was And I also, you know, my wife's kind of going through this journey as well. It's so easy to to focus on the patient here, but it's really important to focus on the spouse, what they're going through. Uh, And in some ways, I think it's nearly worse for them because they're constantly seeing, you know, the person they love kind of wilt in front of them. And they're powerless to do anything you know whereas at least i was looking out from my position um and i could see the blue skies and the you know but i was also seeing my spouse you know suffering and not being able to help in any way trying to but you know it, it it was just adding um a kind of anxiety on top of anxiety and i did get to a stage where i contacted, I have to say at this stage as well, and probably because I was very much at the end stage of the condition, there was very little that could be done. Uh, oh. And it was becoming apparent that that's what my healthcare team thought as well, because I was becoming, becoming less engaged with them. At least this is on the on the secondary care side of things. So that kind of depressed me. It really did. I could understand it intellectually but emotionally it was really difficult because i felt they were giving up on me i felt you know once you get to a point of where you feel there's no hope that's the darkest place it really is and it's how do you get yourself out of there when you feel those around you that are there to help you and you know you trust them are more or less saying well john there's not really much we can do um I think there was stuff that could have been done. I think, um, you know, uh, looking at um, uh, hospice, you know, I think there isn't enough discussion about hospice because people are afraid of mentioning it, which is completely wrong in my in my view. Uh, hospice care can be uh, mistaken for it only provides end-of-life care, which, of course, is completely wrong. And even though I didn't myself, kind of sign myself up to it I do know a number of people who have and had and got a lot from it and it wasn't to do with end of life it was actually to do with um, engaging with life, engaging with society and also managing conditions and I don't think there is enough about that, managing symptoms and once you view it in that way and I think there's a lot of re-education needs to be done around that, uh, particularly when you're at a stage as I was at the end of twenty twenty where my options were you know evaporating before my eyes, but i did uh I contacted my g p and I had explained to them how you know I was really feeling anxious stroke you know depressed i you know I think I was probably on the cusp, and that's that's was such an alien term for me because I was just my positivity was kind of my my DNA if that's not too much of a irony um and the gp obviously was extremely empathetic understood and had sent through um yeah medication which was antidepressant stroke anxiety uh, medication um and what happened is i didn't actually receive them until i was discharged from hospital following my transplant because i rang on a friday i got the call uh, for my transplant operation on the Monday, and my medication arrived on the Tuesday, so um, it, it was there waiting for me when I came uh, out of hospital uh, just over three weeks later, having had a double lung transplant.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd like to talk to you more uh, more about that. I mean, it's um, um, so so delighted that you were in a position to receive uh, a, a transplant and, and that to um it, it it's been successful i know it's, it's it's not an easy process but just to to think about uh, the the time be, before that and thankfully you had a very supportive general practitioner i'm i'm just wondering whether you think from the specialist unit whether you were ever offered or whether it might have been helpful to have, have had a, a a referral to psychology
1: yeah, yeah i think i think it would have i think it would have um, it again it's and maybe maybe I fell into a kind of a halo effect, where, because I was so engaged and you know I was trying to educate myself, maybe I fell off the radar a bit um you know, maybe there was an assumption made, oh, you know if there's anything John needs he he'll he'll contact us. we don't need to contact him, and I think that's a dangerous place to be, and again, it's in hindsight, I look back, and I think maybe that's where you know. I, I kind of fell into that, you know, between two stools in a way. Um and I can understand you've got to realise this was during COVID. So NHS, everybody in the NHS was working so hard, still are, but particularly then because we were also heading towards peak COVID in London, which is where I was based. Uh so I can it, it was it wasn't a usual period, so I think we need to be mindful of that too. There was lots of challenges happening. However, you know, um, I did feel at that stage somewhat abandoned, and I'm, I'm sure I wasn't the only patient um, at that time uh, that felt that. You know, there's a lot of. I know there was a lot of operations that were cancelled, and uh, and and even just appointments, and uh, and that we'll probably be suffering for that from that for some time to come. Uh, it's going to take some time for that to work out of the system, I would, I would say. Um, but going back to where my situation was, um, I was, I was lucky. I had got to the end stage of my condition. I was losing all possible hope. And it's something that I'm, I'm very mindful of that a family had to go through hardship and pain and suffering for me to gain a new life. They had, they lost a loved one. And it's something I'm mindful of. And every day, I not just think of my donor, but their family as well. And what a sacrifice. And and also, what insight and what compassion they showed at a time when I had, I had no hope. Let's face it. Even my consultant afterwards said that, yeah, he thought at that time, because it was in early 2021, uh, thought I wouldn't make Easter. And he was right. There's no way I would have done that. So I was, this was my only chance. And again, I felt so fortunate because this was the one and only call I got. And that is in itself unusual. Uh, Most patients, the the first call is a dry run, as as they call it, and maybe even the second one. And I wouldn't have been around for a second one. Uh, So the fact I had uh, the first call and the first and only call, and I had received my uh, transplant at that stage, is just uh, unbelievable. It really is, um, and I, I've, I feel, I feel it difficult to even uh, articulate what that is like. Uh, it's, it's you near, know, it's, uh, it is impossible to try and articulate it. But I'm forever grateful for everyone who was involved in in ensuring that that that, uh, that was operation was going to take place.
0: I, I think as well um, that, that you did quite a lot of the work. Um, I understand at that time you were a very determined patient in, in recovery um, and you were in, in, in hospital. We were mid-pandemic. Um and um your your wife was doing the best to support you, but I think visiting was probably restricted at that time. Mm. So I I just for for the for people who are listening to this podcast, I wonder whether you could share some of those experiences of, of, of waking up post transplant and that those that very short time actually of of post transplant experience in, in hospital.
1: Yes, it was um well again I just just before that, before the operation, even I was I was I actually drove myself to the operation um, because I was convinced that I would receive a telephone call cancelling the whole thing. That either the organ wasn't viable or something, because generally something does happen. So I thought, well, this is a dry run, and we will get a telephone call, and we can just drive back home. Uh, however, that didn't happen, and I had so convinced myself that at some point within this next few hours that this would be the case, even when I was wheeled up towards the operating theater, I thought, wow, they're leaving this very late in the day before they cancel. Um, so convinced I was, um, and even when I was in the operating theater and the, there's a nurse that comes, the ILD nurse comes down with you um, all the way to sort of like hand over, And uh, it was afterwards when I woke up and it was the same nurse that was there just to make things very familiar. And uh, when I explained this to her, she said, well, that explains why you were so calm in the operating theater. Because she said she'd never seen a a patient that seemed to be just so laid back. It was like, you know, you realize you're going through a double lung operation. But I was convinced I wasn't. It wasn't going to happen. And maybe that was a good kind of thing, because it meant then that I was completely chilled. So when I woke up and realized it went ahead, I was probably as surprised as everybody else that it did. Um, and then I thought, uh, when they then told me it took me four days to wake up, I I took that quite badly. I thought I'm in a worse position than I thought I would be in. I thought four days practically in a coma. I mean, it was, it was semi induced, um, because they uh, quite rightly thought I needed the rest because I come in. I, I was quite emaciated by the time I got in because I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't eat. I had no appetite, so to try and keep muscle and, and weight on was becoming near impossible for me. So um, I, I was in a, a fairly low way, even though everyone around me was saying, "Oh, that you know, had gone really well and I was doing well." But uh, and this is where delirium kicks in because I was, uh, I, I put, they had given me so much. Uh, uh, immune suppressant medication prior to the operation, because they obviously want to make sure that the the organs accepted and there is no rejection or any risk of it that they give quite a lot uh, of of medication so once I came to four days later um i um I started seeing things I remember seeing this tiny little spider at the end of the bed and i said to the nurse i said "Oh, you got a spider in the bed so um so i remember james came in introduced himself and i said right james i said um i said are you on for mission impossible and he didn't know what I was talking about i said i'm mission impossible i want you, i want you to have me out of here in 2 days um that that was quite an impossible mission um but he was a bit surprised and very much up for the challenge because he says like, he's never had a patient say that to him uh generally they want to stay in bed and just they 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 definitely don't want to see a physio and i said no i'm i'm whatever you want me to do i'll do it uh, I said, can you get a bike in here? Maybe as well. I can do some cycling. So basically the next day, um, they had me up um, with a lot of support. I could, I could barely put one foot in front of the other. But by probably day four, I was uh, sitting out on my own. Uh, by the next day, I was beginning to cycle so i really did sort of set myself each day i would set myself a longer target you know they you know i'd walk 50 meters and then i'd walk up i'll try and double it and they'd always be there to support me uh but I, you know it's difficult to walk when you've got about four tubes attached to you and you have to carry those as well um but it was it was it was bit by bit but it was important to set targets it was important to have realistic targets as well uh, i didn't want to have any knockback uh, so but it had to be a, a development each each day i had to have some success built into it and i think that really helped and as soon as i was independent i tried to get as independent as possible so you know my first trip to the bathroom on my own was a milestone so i made sure i got to that quite quickly and then I was, I was self-medicating within a few more days. So, and and of course, that's really important. They want to make sure that you can medicate yourself, get the right uh, drug dose, and all of that at the right time. So, I really did engage with that as quickly as I could. And within, there was at one stage, I was actually uh, training some of the uh, junior nurses that were coming to have a look around to how to to connect various nebulizers and things like that, that I was using. So that, that really did help me tremendously, uh, to, to, um, well, as I say, I was out within just just over three weeks of the operation I was discharged. And, um, and I think that's really important. The attitude, you must, you, you, if, if you don't really get to, um, a, a good level of understanding of your medication, good levels of what exercise you need to do and how regularly you need to do it and the rate at which you need to do it at. Those those are really important. Um because you're gonna do much better once you're in a more familiar environment at home uh, than you will in hospital. There's still there's still risks. As I said, I was you know, I, I got my uh, uh my lungs uh when it was peak COVID um so you don't really want to hang around any place that COVID could be a, a risk.
0: So I think your uh, determination is 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 admirable, John. And and I um, I know you are who you are, but I think your story is um, very in, in inspiring uh, for for others. I'm um, I'm curious to know, having having made it home. I guess then is another uh, the start of another journey. Is that having lived with um, IPF for a, a significant chunk of time, is then you're transitioning to not being a patient who has IPF? Yes. Um, and I, I, I wondered uh, how that journey has been.
1: Yeah, well, um, I, I remember coming coming through the door, and one thing I, had, I hadn't mentioned, but because I was in such a badware prior to it we had to get a, um, a stair lift installed so when i came back home the first thing i saw was on the stair lift my wife had actually put down, out of order <laughs> on the stair lift. <laughs> um so uh, that was that was quite uh, amusing um but the first thing i remember is um ringing up my oxygen supplier and asking them to come and um remove all of the oxygen canisters that I had stored and that I was using. Um, and my oxygen concentrator, which was plumbed in through the house as well. Um, so that was quite a moment when the supplier Pete actually turned up and. I have a video of them removing all of the, the oxygen. And that really did kind of put an underlying that I was in a new place uh the fact that um the only people you know that can say you know that uh you know i no longer to be able to say i no longer have ipf um was something i thought i would never be able to say i thought this is something that's a that's a lifelong thing uh so that was quite quite something uh i did have to re-educate myself on how to breathe again because you when you get ipf particularly if you're with it for you know pretty much towards the end your breathing becomes very shallow and that becomes a muscle memory for you you become very used to breathing just very shallow and that's a very bad way of breathing particularly if you're trying to make sure that you're not going to get infection because then you're going to obviously build up a petri dish for infection uh, to be attracted to if you're not doing deep breathing clearing mucus from the lower parts of the lungs so that was something i um again educated myself about you know doing the deep breathing going through the breathing cycle as well the huff cycle to make sure that because i still do that i still clear out any um mucus to make sure that i don't get any infection because i'm still vulnerable i'm still considered clinically vulnerable and will do because i'm on immune suppressants as well so i try and keep those lungs i I i treat them very carefully um you know they're pretty much pristine and I want to keep them as pristine as I possibly can Uh, so I have great respect for them and uh, so that's part of my routine Uh, it was part of my routine when I was an IPF patient but it used to take me an awful lot longer and it was for different reasons Uh, this is very much just to keep things very healthy so that's part of the routine doing regular exercise is something as well I do have an exercise bike, and I had an exercise bike when I had IPF. But towards the end, I couldn't use it because it was just too hard to be able to use it. And now to be able to get on on it and do ten k and up to twenty k on it is is quite refreshing. And it, again, underlines I'm in a different place. Uh, so I've done that. I've gone back to playing badminton again, which was a game I thought I would never play again, and it's something I really have, uh, you know, I played for a large part of my life and only recently I, I entered into um a satellite uh tournament uh for the transplant games uh, which was last month and i played badminton competitively for the first time in about four years and uh it it, it, it wasn't easy um i'll give you that but the, the lungs were fine it was the rest of me that was the problem uh i just wasn't fit enough i wasn't back i, I thought i was back to my normal self. Uh, you know what it's like if you're a competitive person which i definitely am you forget about uh, maybe maybe you're you, you need a little bit more uh training and i definitely do um but i've now joined my club again so that's something i've hoped to continue and again i'm very careful with with um covid as well that uh, that i don't uh put myself in any risk and those who i play with are very much aware of my situation as well so they're very um very uh, thoughtful, if you like, on on ensuring they keep their distance. Um, but yeah, so so it, in a way, I'm I am making the most of it, uh, and I continue chairing my IPF support group. I did ask them if they wanted a chair that no longer had IPF, but they were resounding in their uh, support that I continue, um, which which was not, which was which was good. Um, so, and I'm also now involved in, in many other groups and um, i volunteer quite a lot around research as well within in into genomics um familial uh, and ipf as well Uh, i get involved in in quite a lot of groups and i intend to continue doing that Uh, of course now i'm a great advocate and promoter of organ uh, donation uh, and it's something i've already donated my organs to to science so there could be students slicing up my lungs as we speak um so hopefully there'll be some insights that will come from that that will hopefully um move forward the science around fibrotic lung conditions and hopefully we get a cure because that's our ultimate aim really in all the research that's going on at the moment is to is to no longer have this as I mean you look at what's happened with cystic fibrosis patients and that's great to see uh, we, we all rejoice in that and we hope that one day um, IPF can have a similar celebration
0: I think that is a perfect point to uh, end John uh, on, on on that thought I, I have to say it's been a, an absolute privilege and, um, and delightful to, to talk to you and I'm I'm so, um, grateful for the generosity of, of, of your spirit, um, and the sincere gratitude that, that you have towards your donor. I'm sure that would mean a lot to, to the family. And you are truly, um, uh, an an inspiration to the, I know you don't like compliments, but you are an inspiration to the interstitial lung disease community and very highly regarded. And I thank think you. for me, perhaps I will reflect on those people that I work with who are expert patients, but it is important to remember that the role as a, as a patient needs equal treatment too. I think that is something for us all to to think about moving forward. Uh, so, so John, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and um, I wish you all the very best.
1: Thank you very much, Anne-Marie, and thank you for uh, for the opportunity uh, to to talk to talk about my my journey. And I do hope that, in some ways, that it can bring some hope and inspiration to others going going through it. It is a tough road, but uh, there's still a lot that individuals can do to improve their own quality of life. And it's important that they keep that in mind. Yeah, thank, you.
0: thank you. Absolutely. Thank you.